Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, reading and writing is what this program is about, but how much do you really know about it? There are a lot of writing programs and courses out there, But what about reading? This morning we'll learn about the art of reading from Damon Young. Well, welcome, Damon. Welcome back. Thank you. The art of reading isn't about teaching kids to read, but Damon is a teacher of sorts. Now, Damon, what's your field? Philosophy. Philosophy. And through this book, you've made references to philosophers and how and, and how they have read and written. So is this book, The Art of Reading, for intelligent people or are you telling us what intelligent books we should be reading? <laughs> it's not really about sort of raw cognitive power. It's, it's more about um, virtue. So I'm less interested in whether someone is, has this sort of immensely powerful brain and I'm more interested in, are they patient? Are they curious? Um, are they just with books? That Those are the questions that interest me as a philosopher. You know, what is their disposition toward a book or towards a, a poem or towards a newspaper? How do they approach it? What I was surprised that you actually told us some of the uh, popular novels that some of the philosophers read. Rousseau. Romantic fiction. <laughs> yes, that's right. And Sartre um, really liked detective comics and, and cowboy <laughs> comics. Just... There was one, uh, Nick Carter, the, the detective American, was one of Sartre's favourite comics. And his mum used to buy it down. It's this little secondhand bookshop down by the, the water. It just doesn't go together. The philosophers of the, that time and... Anyway, on with the book. The first part of the book is called Liberating Pages. But when an author writes a book, they have the freedom of expression and freedom of ideas to put into the book. Mm. But how is it liberating for a reader? Well, I suppose liberation comes in because reading is ultimately an act of freedom. I mean, you have to bring this world into existence. You have to take these marks on a page or on a screen or on a plaque um, or on the sticker on an avocado and turn it into a world. And if, if there is no readers, there is no text, doesn't exist. So what I'm stressing there is the, res- the enormous power and responsibility of readers to essentially complete or half complete this job that the author has finished. Mm. I'm quoting here. Reading is an introduction to a more ambitious mind. Mm. And through the book, you tell us about the skills a reader could bring to a reading. What are some of those skills? Okay, well, again, it's not so much a skill. When we think of a skill, it's sort of like um, how to make a table or um, how to brush your teeth. A disposition is more how you will use those skills, how to know when to use them, and with what morality you use them. So um, a, a good example of a virtue is something like courage. Now, the the classic example of courage is on the battlefield. And there you might have skills with a sword or skills with a shield, but courage is how you deploy those skills in what circumstances. It's similar with the book. 
uh, once we're readers, we all have skills at knowing what a word means and turning pages and using a bookmark. But how do you deploy those skills? How do you know which book to pick up? And are you brave enough to press on once it starts making you uncomfortable? Well, do you think, you know, you've mentioned courage as one of the dispositions for a reader. Is that one of the things you, you you did when you went did all your Star Trek books, when you jumped into Star Trek and, you know, you sort of became wish fulfilment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in part that was, um, that was a kind of uh, cowardly approach to books because I was seeking in books an escape from life. Now, I think we always need an escape. Um, there's nothing wrong with escapism. As T.S. Eliot said, we, mankind cannot bear very much reality. My problem was that I, I, it was unbalanced. There was a kind of ugliness to my craving for consolation in this kind of what I've called delete fiction because mm-hmm. when I downloaded the Star Trek novels and finished them, I didn't keep them on my Kindle. I just deleted them because they were, they were done. I was never going to read them again. So the, the cowardice was part of that, but what I focus in that chapter is temperance, which has to do with appetites. For me, the real courage was learning to read works that didn't give me what I wanted. When they don't have the ending precise. Yeah, when when there's some ambiguity to them or ambivalence or they leave me in doubt. So, that you know, often we'll pick up even a horror book and it's supposed to be frightening and, and maybe it does get the blood pumping, but ultimately that horror novel gives you exactly what you wanted. So there's something kind of domesticated about it. Whereas the thing that really took courage for me uh, was yeah, reading works that left me wondering what, what just happened? How yeah. are they feeling? Or leaving me in a state of doubt about myself, which often happens with poetry, for example, or really good fiction. Poetry, yeah. I've got to be more courageous with poetry as a reader too. But another aspect, another disposition you bring in is curiosity. Yes. And this this is the major thing for readers. They read because they're curious, don't they? Sometimes. I mean, there's a difference between wanting novelty and I think being curious or just simply being amused and being curious. Being curious has to do with the pleasure you take in the intellectual effort of going past the obvious. So one of the examples I use in the, that chapter is Batman. Because as a, as a comic fan, I had to get Batman into the book. Now, people often... Batman's such a huge figure in popular culture. Been around for decades. And people often see other characters like uh, Moon Knight or the Green Arrow as knockoffs of Batman. Now, what's the logic in there? The logic in there is Batman is the original and these are just copies. But Batman himself... Um, is part of a long tradition of sort of heroes Mm. and detective comics, going back to people like Sherlock Holmes and Edgar Allan Poe. And then there's Zorro um, or Nick Carter, Sartre's favourite detective. (laughs) And so Batman, in that sense, is not this kind of grand original. He's he's sort of... um, He's come together from various strands of various traditions... And he's, he's not this sort of grand, authentic thing. Now, curiosity would suggest that when you see Batman as this great authentic, you're doing an injustice to the very tradition you're reading. And then there's the next question. Okay, fair enough. Why are you reading it then? And so that, the question I asked myself after thinking about Batman was, Damon, why are you so into Batman? So I, I turned my curiosity upon itself and asked about, you know, what, what is it about this, you know, 40-something nerd that thinks he's, you know, that Batman's really important? Mm. Oh, 
okay, interesting. Now, what about patience? And in the, in the chapter on patience, you um, gave an example of Henry James as yeah. an author. How to be patient with Henry James. <laughs> so I talk about that chapter is um, boredom at Buckingham Palace. And <laughs> I follow Queen Elizabeth II as she reads Henry James. And this is from um, a novel, An Uncommon Reader. And she's just... She's at the point where she can't stand it anymore. So Henry James's phrases, subphrases, clauses, and subclauses just go on and on and on. And his plotting is the same way. He just draws things out excruciatingly. This is this kind of Victor, high Victorian prose and architecture. You do give the example. I think it goes on for about six lines and finishes with a full stop. Yeah, and it's just, it's one <laughs> just... excruciatingly long sentence. And at one point, the Queen just says, "Oh, do get on." <laughs> now, it's it's the the point there is. Henry James really is difficult to read. He really does take perseverance. He just mm. goes on. And I, I love Henry James, but sometimes I just think, oh, come on, Tiger, get on with it. <laughs> but if you can persevere, if you can work through it, in something like the Golden Bowl, you experience one of the most sort of subtle and profound depictions of human matter, maturation we've seen in the English language. It's a magnificent book. Um, but... But in order to get that, you have to be patient. Have to be patient. Well, as you say, I studied Henry James at year 12. Now, 40 years later, <laughs> 40 years later, as you say, you bring nostalgia, regret, mockery and loss. Yeah. And you built up these life experiences and then you can take them back. Exactly. I mean, so, the idea of giving Henry James to a high school student, ugh. I just think, just, dude, really? <laughs> okay. Well, what is about... This is um, talking with Damon Young about his book, The Art of Reading. What about pride as a reader? Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in, in pride. Pride, strictly speaking, is just the pleasure you have in yourself. Um, and what I talk about in that chapter is the pride you feel when you bring all your critical apparatuses and all your wisdom and all your knowledge to a book. You're taking pleasure in, in sort of all of the, the wisdom and knowledge that's accumulated in you. And I'm suggesting there's nothing wrong with that pleasure. There's nothing wrong with really coming to grips with a book in an informed and rich sort of way. What, what I also talk about, though, is vanity. Oh, yes. Now, vanity is essentially what might be called overweening pride or pride without accomplishment. So when you're a vain reader, you're taking enormous pleasure in yourself but you're often not actually reading well or you're barely reading at all. Mm. So I, I give the example of the priests who were very critical of Nikos Kazantzakis' book, The Last Temptation. Um, they actually said it ought to be banned. He was censured for writing it, but they hadn't read it. Uh, look, I can see this because I'm guilty of this conceited or vanity reading because I didn't read Forty Shades of Grey and I have, I have a, you know, a, 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 I can comment on it. So... Look, there's also temperance, which you sort of hinted about, and justice. Yeah. Justice. And you give the example of Virginia Woolf calling James Joyce's Ulysses a painful burden. Yes. She said it's it's like watching a, a queasy undergraduate scratching his pimples. I mean, it's just... <laughs> Jesus. Now, um, Virginia Woolf was an incredibly just reader, I think, in general. I, I think she knew how to come to a book... 
um, freshly and with curiosity, mm. with patience, with care, and she knew how to measure that book against the greatest books she's read. And she was constantly saying, what kind of a book is this? How good is it? I think most of the time she was really astute. But Joyce got her back up, partly because in her eyes, um, he was common. And it, she was just, you know, and also he was a, um, a competing modernist. Mm, and so he was, you know, he's a rival and he's common and, and it got her back up and she admitted it. But what makes her a just reader is that she did admit it. She was aware of her faults later on. Later on. Uh, later on, after yeah. he died, when it was too late to, to apologise, then she said, you know, I actually quite enjoyed parts of that. Part of this, you actually talk about the, the 90 names that uh, James Joyce gives to, just listing of Irish hero, heroes and heroines. Yes. Now, I actually listened to the tape book, taping, ta- talking oh, book. Oh, wow, the audio book, yeah. And... It was it was like music. Yeah. It was just I laughed out loud. I moved to these ninety names. Yes. So Damon Young, is there sometimes? You know, do you think some books are more for the ear than the eye? Yes, I think so. Yeah, and certainly um, there's something visceral about the voice, and usually we have to supply it when we read. But listening to a voice read a novel brings mm. real personality oh, to it, and as you say. Music. And so, yeah, I, I am interested in that. At the end of the art of reading, there's the lumber room. Now, um, previously we had Barry Jones on the program and he gave us the glossary, glossary of books that he thinks mm. we should read. And his didn't include Batman <laughs> or, or describe books by their cover. This is a quote. This book, a mottled emerald and burgundy cloth. Yeah, I mean, look, it seems incredibly indulgent, but my library is really important to me. And I'm enthusiastic about it. I want to share with people not just the text, but what what kind of cover does it have? Um, Is it well bound? Is it cheap? Can I get it? (laughs) And... I hope everybody will go out and get Damon Young's book, The Art of Reading. It's published by Melbourne University uh, Publishing and it really is an incredibly well-researched public reflection on an often private art. Your quote again. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Damon. Ah, fascinating. Part of my history as an English teacher was, you know, encouraging kids to read and that negotiation you have with a text. But here's my text. The sinking of the Titanic is a social trope synonymous with disaster and loss. Despite knowing the outcome, novelists and filmmakers have returned to it again and again. The potential behind the story is, unlike the ship itself, unsinkable, as is 3CR, unsinkable. David Dyer's The Midnight Watch explores the tragedy from a unique viewpoint, that of those on the Californian, a ship that didn't respond when it first saw the distress flares. So, David, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Now, David, what is it about the Titanic tragedy that it keeps echoing through the ages? Well, it's an extraordinary story, and it was an extraordinary ship. And it was the largest ship, the most luxurious ship. It was peopled with the world's most famous celebrities, rich men mostly from the United States. And then, of course, it sank. It sank in a very extraordinary way after hitting an iceberg in the middle of the night. And that in itself is dramatic. But 
my theory about why it still lives on now is it's, it has to do with the way it sank. It didn't sink immediately. It didn't catastrophically capsize. It sank in a very well-behaved way for a ship. And it took almost three hours. It stayed upright. And that gave a lot of opportunity for all of those dramas that we know about now by watching films, mainly James Cameron's film, to act themselves out. There was time for um, rich men, John Jacob Astor famously to stand back and let his help his wife into a lifeboat. There was time for the Strausses, Mr. Strauss, who owned Macy's in, in Manhattan, to not go ahead of the other men, even though he was offered that space in a lifeboat, and then for his wife to stand by his side. There was time for Bruce Ismay to make that decision. He was the head of the White Star Line to get into a lifeboat a decision he subsequently paid for for the rest of his life. There was time for the band to play on. You can write a book about any of those things, and people have. And that's why I think it lives on. There's so much um, storytelling yeah. potential. But it's also the stories of those in steerage as well, the families uh, that were lost, who, who weren't famous, uh, who were coming. You've got one family in there, the Sage family. Uh, how many children? Uh, nine. Nine. Mm. And they were going to start a new life uh, in Florida and gone. Gone. Well, you, it's funny you should say that because in all of the newspapers at the time that I read, the 1912 newspapers, the third class are barely mentioned at all. Mm. And even in subsequent tellings of the story, in movies, in books, they're never mentioned individually. They're always a mass they always rush up at the end. They always miss out on the boats. They're never named. Um, and that's one thing I tried to remedy a little bit in my book. I wanted to name some of them. They yeah. were living real people, even though they were poor. Now, you've, you've touched on a couple of things here in terms of going through the articles. You've got one character here, John Steadman, who's the journalist, and he's telling his uh, story in the first person, and we alternate between what's going on on the Californian and John Steadman investigating. Um, I'm just wondering how much you identified with John Steadman, who had to go through the articles on both sides of the Atlantic. He did. Well, in a way, John Steadman's journey is my journey. I mean, and there is a little bit of me in John. And he becomes, as I did, obsessed with this ship, not the Titanic, but the other ship the ship that was nearby and didn't go to the rescue, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But he, he was obsessed with that story. And his obsession drives him towards an answer. And he does go on that quest on both sides of the Atlantic, Atlantic and he doesn't give up until he gets his answer. But the weight of material that must be out there that was published uh, because you've got um, money being paid to all sorts of people who were on the ship, who were rescued, who were part and parcel of the other ships, etc., being paid enormous sums of money uh, by the newspapers to tell their stories. Well, that was the unusual thing about John Steadman. He stayed in Boston because he was obsessed with this ship, that there were rumours that he'd had dead bodies on board, but it certainly didn't have any survivors. Whilst down in New York... All of the survivors had come ashore. They were all selling their, their stories to newspapers. Harold Bride, the radio operator on the Titanic, sold his story to the New York Times for $1,000. Now, that's an enormous sum in those days. So all of that um, 
quest for stories, all of that, that storytelling was going on down in New York. Stedman stays in Boston where there's a, a sort of a quieter but his role, story. his reputation is made on the fact of giving voice to the marginalised. There are cases of a, a fire um, in a in a factory, and he talks about the girls that didn't survive that. It was a sewing factory, etc. But that leads then onto what you alluded to: the Californian. What was it? Where was it? How was it? Because this is what actually drives the narrative: John Stedman finding out or trying to discover. What happened to the Californian? Yes, well, this book is really about the Californian. The Titanic's like the opera singer, but she never comes on stage. Well, very briefly, but she's off stage. And this ship, a quieter, stranger, odder ship, is is the main character in a way. And it's a fascinating ship. It's. I start out, uh, off in the novel saying how ordinary this ship was. It was a very ordinary cargo ship, but it happened to be in an extraordinary place at an extraordinary time. If it had been anywhere else, we would never, ever have heard of it. But it happened to be at around midnight, the 14th of April, we're on the anniversary almost now, it happened to be in the middle of the Atlantic, stopped because of an ice field, and then watching, without knowing what it was seeing, a strange ship come up and then stop and then fire white rockets. And, and it, it was at the midnight watch, a time of loneliness, demons and trances. I was fascinated. So I took up my pen and paper once again, but this time I began not to write about Lord, but about Stone, the man who stood the watch. And Herbert Stone saw the distress flares. Yes, well, the midnight watch starts logically at midnight. And I've stood the midnight watch a few times it's a, it is a strange time it's very lonely you're often the only person apart from the ship's lookout awake so herbert stone wasn't quite alone he had an apprentice with him but his ship was stopped and he and the apprentice were the ones that saw these strange rockets now rockets at sea have a pretty clear meaning um, famously a, a titanic second-class passenger, Lawrence Beasley, wrote a book about the disaster. And it's got a line in it which says, everyone knows what rockets at sea mean. And he was meaning the passengers on the Titanic because the rockets went up and everybody looked up in awe and wonder at them and, and everybody realised we're in trouble. So Herbert Stone knew what they meant as well. So here he is, an officer on board on his, the bridge of his ship, looking at these rockets. What does he do? Well, he rings down to the captain who is sleeping below and tells the captain there's a ship firing rockets. And what does the captain do? <laughs> well, the captain, um, he, well, I don't want to give too much away, but he, 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 let's, put, let's say this, he doesn't come up to the bridge and the Californian does not go to those rockets. Well, it doesn't, it's not one of the first responders, even though it's one of the closest. But there are... It is re the closest. It is the closest. But there are sort of reasons, in, to a certain extent, why it doesn't, why it didn't pick up the full story. What are those reasons? Well, that's... The, I mean, that really is the central puzzle. Why didn't it go to the rockets? Why didn't Captain Lord come up? And lots of explanations have been offered over the years. None of them I've found very persuasive. That's why I went on my own search to find what I thought was the answer. I think I got there in the end. 
Well, we're not going to actually uh, reveal, but there is an answer. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there Your is an answer. answer. Yeah. Well, my answer, which I think is the right answer, um, and it's it's a complex answer, though. Oh, very complex. But there are some logical reasons, to a certain extent, why it didn't respond. I mean, the radio was turned down. Oh, yes. there are Absolutely. There are some very uh, sensible and reasonable reasons why the ship didn't respond to other cries of help from the Titanic. The radio officer had actually gone to sleep. And this is one of the most tragic aspects of the whole disaster. The third officer came down to the radio room on the Californian at midnight, and he had just started to learn how to use the equipment, and he knew how to read Morse code. By this stage, the Titanic had hit her iceberg and was sending out radio calls for help. Well, he put the, the headphones on but heard nothing. And the tragedy is that a little part of the equipment had wound down. You needed to wind it up like a clock. Every now and again it wound down. It chose that moment to We wind occasionally down. find that this moment. trouble uh, uh, working the panel here where we haven't turned something uh, the right way. Well, that, human error. And usually the consequences of that are not 1,500 lives. Yes. But here, 1,500 lives lay in that mechanism. It's an extraordinary... It, that's not me making that up. That is the true part of this yeah. story, and it's the most agonising part. But the way. Californian was also in an ice field. How justifiable is it then? And it had stopped to avoid danger. It had stopped to avoid danger. It had actually gone into the ice field. It was low slush, but it had easily come out again, so it was drifting in clear water. That certainly... It would have been not without risk for the Californian to go towards the Titanic. But the captain we do know was a courageous man. The captain we do know would have gone. And he did go at full speed the next morning when he heard via radio, when they eventually did wake the radio officer up, that the Titanic had sunk or was sinking. They weren't sure. He then did go at full speed, as did the captain of the Carpathia, who had a shipload of passengers. He went at full speed. I mean, it's what you do if you're a ship's captain and you know that there's another ship in distress. But the Californian virtually didn't find anything. What's the reason for that? Well, when it eventually got there, it did find the Carpathia already there, and the Carpathia was bringing up the very last lifeboat from the Titanic, and then the Carpathia told the Californian, we have all of the survivors, 1,500 people have died could you stay behind and look for bodies? Now, you can only imagine what Captain Lord, was his name, Captain Stanley Lord of the Californian, knowing that he'd been told of rockets during the night, knowing that he hadn't gone to them, and knowing that here he was at, at a wreck site where 1,500 people have died, you can only imagine what he must have felt. So I don't know if his heart was in it when he searched then for bodies because he certainly didn't find any. Well, he was not necessarily in the right place. Well, I've been asked often why, why I think the Californian didn't find any bodies. And I think it's because, interestingly, it's a slightly complicated answer, but when the um, Titanic sank, the lifeboats that were left behind naturally rowed towards the light they could see. And that light was in the north. That was the Californian. They rowed for, for an hour or so until the Carpathia turned up from the south and then they turned around but that meant they actually rode away from the bodies so when the Carpathia and then the Californian ended up at the lifeboats 
those lifeboats were already a long way away from the bodies. That's my reason. That's my theory about mm. why they actually didn't find any bodies. But you've got notions of drift and all of these other things that would have yes. come into play or even being sucked down as well. So it's hard to know what would have uh, ultimately happened to the bodies. Now, you do provide an answer but we're not going to tell the reader. It, as you say, it's your answer, but it's plausible. And it's very, um, how would you... Ordinary is not the right word, but understandable in some ways. Um, you could account for it that way. Yes, well, it lies, I think, deep in human psychology. Yes. And what we find down there in those depths is something that we probably recognise in all of our psychologies. Which gets me back to my original question about how and why the Titanic still resonates today because the psychology, the hubris involved, the social classes, all of these elements that were apparent, there were so many stories mm. that still resonate today uh, about the unsinkable ship that went down on its maiden voyage. Jan, that's going to have to take us out. Oh, we're still mysteries. floating next week. Uh, but the book was The Midnight Watch, the author David Dyer, and it's Random House Penguin. And I was speaking with Damon Young and his book The Art of Reading by Melbourne University Publishing.